All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast and happy Father's Day everyone. This is our Father's Day special. It's going to be episode number 27 and we're going to talk about Finding Nemo. And uh, I want to say hello to my friend Robert, co-host. How you doing? Hey, buddy. I'm doing great. I'm uh, excited to do this uh, Disney cartoon movie with you. We had all kinds of options to do for Father's Day specials. We were looking at like Field of Dreams, Aliens, Transformers, all kinds of great Father's Day material that you were like, no. Classics. I got somebody that wants to talk about this Disney cartoon movie. So we're going to do it. And it, it is. It is a very father going above and beyond type movie. So it'll be good. Yeah, so a Disney Disney movie from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective, that's what we do here. And our special guest is Jeremiah Martin, who we met through the Tom Woods group. He's a supporting listener of Tom Woods, and uh, he's been uh, we've been sharing content and liking and chatting and whatnot for a while now, and he was a big fan of Finding Nemo. We found this out in a thread in the Tom Woods group where Tom had mentioned in the show that he does not enjoy the character Crush. So, Jeremiah, how you doing? You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, yeah. I'm doing good. Um, it's good to be on the show. Um, so, yeah, there there was uh, Thaddeus Russell was on uh, the Tom Woods show, and they were talking about the uh, whole idea of the the Protestant work ethic, which with which he actually, Thaddeus was calling the Puritan work ethic, interestingly. Um, but they were talking about the contrast between that and like being like being like a beach bum type dude who doesn't doesn't work hard and that kind of thing. And um, Tom was saying that the that sort of personality it was exemplified by Crush and uh, the sea turtle in uh, Finding Nemo. And <laughs> he uh, Tom is a notorious workaholic or was he talks about about that occasionally. Um, and so that whole that whole personality of just you know not wanting to work glamorizing laziness or something right yeah you know he he feels like you might as well i think what his actual phrase was you might as well be born a lizard if that's how you're going to live your life um <laughs> and daddy's just saying actually that that's kind of perfect like that kind of being able to live life that way and uh so it it became this big thing in the group where people were posting uh turtle memes and uh it got kind of weird <laughs> People were putting Tom's face on a turtle and and stuff like that. So yeah, was, guilty, guilty as charged. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he was legitimately creeped out by it. I think. Um, so anyway, and I suggested to Dan that uh, we should talk about Finding Nemo on here because it all fits together. You guys talk about movies and anarchy, and we got hooked hooked up to, through the Tom Woods group, so it makes sense. And, Absolutely. Uh, always. Yeah, always been one of my favorite movies. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so another oh, character. Uh, I was just going to say another character that uh, 
is crushed like is uh, Lebowski in The Big Lebowski. It's kind of the, the dude, yeah, yeah, the dude, the same way there. But yeah, go ahead, Robert. No, I was just gonna say, why don't you uh, talk about um, maybe how you got into the uh, freedom stuff? Oh, me? Yeah, buddy. <laughs> well, my my uh, my libertarian conversion story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it it goes back to Alex Jones, actually. Um, my brother used to listen to him quite a bit, like probably what. 10, 11 years ago, and uh, he, Alex Jones, had been uh, talking about this guy Ron Paul quite a bit, and uh, it must have been, let's see, that event for for the 2008 campaign, and um, so my brother started talking to me about this guy who wanted to like uh, he wanted a gold standard and like wanted to abolish the IRS and all this stuff, and I was just like, this guy sounds like a total nutcase like the what what are you talking about and uh so my brother thankfully uh was persistent and kind of beating me over the head with this stuff and i was like okay and uh so i actually started watching some videos of ron paul and i it's just like it just clicked like i don't know how anybody could you know watch any pretty much any one of his segments that he's done on tv or his speeches or whatnot and not just I don't know, respect the guy. Like every, everything he says makes sense. Like even if you don't necessarily have the same philosophy or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. it was just it was just that whole. It was, it was like this guy's a politician, like really, and he this is the way he talks. Like so, I was just captivated by that. So, um, and of course, the whole Giuliani confrontation um, really solidified my view of, um, or not necessarily solidified, but. Uh, it was just like a mind-blowing moment for, in terms of like the way I thought about foreign policy, just the the way that he could he could put it in such a simple, such simple terms and say, you know, look, they hate us because we're over there, and uh, I w- that was just a light bulb moment for me. Um, and so, you know, I I was kind of so just kind of I, I I didn't really start to kind of del- delve into the intellectual stuff and really reading reading books and stuff until maybe like. Last, within the last couple of years, um, but I've basically been a libertarian for 11 years or so. I would say I probably wasn't an ANCAP until like last year, so I probably actually took longer <laughs> to make that jump than most of the people uh, I know of who are. ANCAPs. What were you? What were you kind of raised as? I mean, were you more of a lefty or a righty? Um, not really either. Um, I I probably would have just been like the most like moderate person ever, like. Because I think, like, my parents were kind of, I mean, they voted for Bill Clinton both times, I think, and, like, you know, but then my dad ended up voting for, like, Bush and, and McCain and stuff. And so it was kind of like they were, I, I, I guess, basically they're moderates. And, and, I mean, he even voted, like, this time my dad, he's, he's not a libertarian by any means, but he, uh, in this last election, he got, just got fed up with everything. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to vote for Jill Stein. Um, yeah. And so that's it. Kind of gives you an idea of like kind of his thinking. Like he doesn't really have. Uh, he's not like he doesn't have like a staunch ideology. Really, he's kind of um, you know him, him and my mom both to some extent. Um, kind the of just per- voted for kind of, swing voters. Yeah, basically. Um, so it's kind of interesting because it, I think that's I've, I haven't heard a lot of like when I hear these like libertarian convergence stories or whatever. I don't often hear that kind of like a background they're like oh we were like super conservative or we were super liberal whatever but for me it was just like the middle of the road and I, that's probably exactly what i would have been is just like very like well this this 
some of this over here makes sense and some of that makes sense. And um, I could see myself like I, I probably could have if I hadn't been like actually like fully convinced of like Austrian economics and anarchism and all that. I could see myself being like gung ho about like Gary Johnson. You know what I mean? Because by the time like we got to that point, he was like kind of positing himself as that type of candidate. And of course, now I I realize how milk toast that kind of uh, yeah. view is. Right. But yeah, uh, right, right in the middle to... of uh, you... the two parties. Yeah, that's Gary Johnson. Point to any one thing that turned you full on ANCAP, or just a collection of knowledge and arguments and whatnot? Uh, it was reading Rothbard, man. <laughs> that was what did it. Very Nobody good. Nobody better. Yeah. Very nice. Now, was that a was that a plug for our site, or which, which book sure. were you reading? You were reading our site. <laughs> no, I was. I was, yeah, but uh, no, I actually I read. Um, uh, the Rothbard Reader, which is oh, put okay. together by uh, uh, Joe Salerno and, and Roger McCaffrey, they did a really good job with that thing. So um, that was kind of what where I was like, eh, I'm gonna I'm gonna delve into his stuff, and so I read that, and I've read a little bit of other stuff here and there. I haven't tackled any of the big treatises yet. But and did you did you bring your brother along on your journey, or is he still kind of um He's more more apolitical, actually, I would say, but I, I don't think he would. He would like fight me on any particular issue. He'd probably be like, "Yeah, you're pretty much right about that." So yeah, yeah. right on. Still turning the frogs gay. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk about one of your favorite movies of all time. Now, can you really point to any one thing that makes this movie hit you right in the feels so hard? Are you a father and you're you've got a bunch <laughs> of kids and they all died by a barracuda attack, or or what, I have what no was children. it? I have no children, oh. but I I think Marlon is uh, is definitely admirable in, in a lot of ways. Um, no, uh, it's I, I can't pick one thing really, because because it, it's one of those movies that just has so many um, it does so many things right um, that it's it's really hard to pinpoint one thing. I, okay. Part of it is that I love I've always loved animated uh, films, particularly uh, computer animated films, ever since I first saw first saw Toy Story. I actually saw it. My my parents surprised me with it just. We were, I don't remember what we were doing, but they just, we just randomly went to the theater and they're like, we're seeing Toy Story. And I was like, sweet. Um, and so I've just loved computer animated movies since then. And uh, I've seen almost every Pixar movie. Um, but yeah, Finding Nemo is still my favorite. I think, uh, well, there's so many things. Let's just start with the way it looks. I mean, okay. I don't think there's any movie. I mean, I can't think of another movie that I that is more beautiful, like, just the way that um, just the colors and how they were able to replicate, you know, the, I guess, an idealized version, I guess, you know, of, of what the right. sea looks like, you know, what un- underwater looks like. Um, and so it's just a gorgeous film. I mean, no, really, I don't think animation has gotten much better than that. I mean, like I saw Finding Dory last year and I didn't think that it didn't really seem like the animation was any better. So I, mm-hmm. I, I think... Yeah. It's. I mean, I, I probably would notice some things like if I was more like steeped in that, you know, world, and I knew I knew kind of what details to look for. But it seems to me that it just still it, it holds up really well. It still looks incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, I watched it like the other day, and yeah, it still looks like a modern movie for sure, even though it's mm-hmm. now what, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys have to watch it on a 4K TV with OLED. You know, the whole yeah. ultra high def, and then you'd see a difference. I think. But yeah, I could I could see that. I do have the Blu-ray. 
um, and uh, um, it, it, the Blu-ray looks amazing, so I can't even imagine. I'm sure that the, the thing about the high, the higher resolution you go, it does sort of point out flaws in the old and older films. Like I was watching Shrek on Blu-ray, and on one of those like 4K type TVs or whatever, and I could definitely see, you know, some of the age, some signs of age on it. You see like jaggies, or what do you see? It's hard to describe. It's like something about the surfaces. They look more. They look sort of plastic. Mm. Um, yeah, that's one so. of the genius things about Toy Stories when they they knew their limitations. They're like, <laughs> exactly. well, we can't replicate perfectly human looks, so we're going to make toys that, you know. So yeah, that, was, that, that movie that still brilliant. holds up for that fact. Right. Yeah. So Daniel, you want to get into um, the Google stuff about this movie? Let's do it. So Finding Nemo. 2003 adventure comedy father looking for his lost son one hour and 41 minutes long super super reviewed uh, five out of five on Amazon 95% of Google users approve I don't see the Rotten Tomatoes thing but I'm sure it's good but well, Rotten Tomatoes is 90 or it's 99 for critics 86 for audiences oh I'm used to seeing that the other way around usually the audience is better than the critics interesting mm-hmm. Uh, so Google says that Marlin, played by Albert Brooks, is a clownfish. He's overly cautious with his son Nemo, played by Alexander Gould, who has a foreshortened fin. So like the little, um, what does he call it? His, his lucky fin? Special fin? Lucky fin. Lucky fin. Uh, when Nemo swims too close to the surface to prove himself, he is caught by a diver and horrified Marlin must set out to find him. A blue reef fish named Dory, played by Ellen DeGeneres, who has a really, really short memory, joins Marlin and complicates the encounters with sharks, jellyfish, and a host of ocean dangers. Meanwhile, Nemo plots his escape from a dentist's fish tank. And that's yeah, the description. That's pretty much it. I mean, for a brief description, I can't, I can't point to too many things wrong. As yeah, anything, really. I think the wording is a little awkward with too close to the surface to prove himself. I think I would have worded it, he goes to the boat, yeah. or to, to touch the butt is what they call it, right? <laughs> Touching the butts. Yeah, so let's right. uh, get into some scenes here, Robert. You want to kick us off there? Uh, sure. So the very first scene, you've got Marlon, and I forget his wife's name because she's only in it so briefly. Coral. Coral, okay. And they're talking about their house and their oceanfront property that they got and how so many clownfish wanted this anemone, but he was such a stud that he was able to get it for her, and she was super pleased. And they're looking at their trove of eggs, and then, uh-oh, here comes a barracudas. And they had to cut away because I can't imagine some barracuda is just, like, snouting, rooting into this coral to eat these fish row. But, okay, I mean, whatever, it's a movie. Um, so he wakes up, and he finds just one egg left over. And um, that's how it starts, really. Um, I think it's funny that the movie wouldn't exist um, if the Barracuda attack didn't happen because, you know, if if he's got 400 kids to take care of and Nemo takes off across the ocean, he's not going to go chase after him because he's got 400 other kids to take care of. And if he's got 400 kids to take care of, you know, they're probably not getting into the logistics of going to this weird school where... 400 aren't going to fit on this ray and 
just, you know, all the things that wouldn't work if, it, if the kids had survived. So they had to die, poor kids. <laughs> well, plus that, whole, that sets up the whole plot because it gives, uh, you know, uh, impetus to Marlin's paranoia and overprotectiveness and anxiety and all of that. Right. Yeah, and they also name the children before they're born, which is terribly bad luck. I don't know if anybody noticed that, but <laughs> nobody does that. <laughs> yeah, he named half Marlon Jr. and the other half Coral Jr. But she said, Coral said that she liked the name Nemo, so he says, all right, we'll name one of them Nemo. Right. Mm-hmm. So then we fast forward to when Nemo is a little kid and he's going to his first day of school. And Helicopter Dad is super protective and doesn't want to see him go. And he's worried about him the whole time and kind of shadows him as he goes off to play with his friends out at the edge of the reef. And while he's arguing with the, the teacher, little Nemo is upset and fed up with Dad being Mr. Helicopter. And he's going to prove that he can actually, you know, he's a big fish and he can take care of himself sort of and... This little fish, his little fish fin isn't a big liability, and he can do it. And he gets, um, he gets caught by some humans. Now, I mean, everybody watching this is probably just like, well, yeah, I mean, humans catch fish. But are we going to play along with these fish having self-ownership? Because this is kind of what we do. So are, is this a kidnapping that we're dealing with, Daniel? Or is just this humans that don't recognize these sentient creatures, and therefore it's perfectly fine? Yeah, I'm going to go with recognize. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Either one. Both of you answer. At the same time. One, two, three, go. Uh, <laughs> uh, go ahead, Jeremiah. You're our guest. Let's get your take on it, and then I'll agree with you probably. That's what, that's generally what we do here. <laughs> yep. Uh, I would say they definitely don't recognize the sentience of the fish. So from their, from that perspective, yeah, it doesn't really make sense to say that they're kidnapping the fish. Okay. Yeah, Daniel? from from the fish eye view, they among themselves see that they're sentient, but the humans in the movie do not. So you don't see the kidnapping as a kidnapping, more of just a fisherman, obviously not a fisherman, but imagine fisherman catching some food and whatever. Well, he, he was catching him for for going in the tank as not not so, as food but as a pet. Whatever, any kind of value. Right. As a resource, is collecting a resource for its value. Right, for satisfying some some desire that he had, and I believe he wanted to give it to his uh, his niece. Is that right? Darla yeah. is her name, yeah. and she ends up killing every <laughs> every pet she's ever had. Uh, well, it's just, funny. Um, later on in the movie, the human dentist guy, he there's a line where he says that he saved the fish, like he rescued the fish, right? Because he was quote struggling for life out in the reef. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of like, you know, so that so he's feeling like he's doing a good thing by rescuing this fish, where the fish feels this massive tragedy, you know, this other way, the completely other way, like he's been kidnapped and imprisoned. Yeah, it's rare. So right. I just watched a movie called um, Rabbit Proof Fence, where it's all about the uh, Australians, not too much to get into it, but um, there are these uh, Australian bureaucrats who kidnap these Aborigine guys, girls, and put them in this, like, Christian school for their own good. They kept the whole movie. They were completely convinced that they were rescuing these people from their own homes and rescuing them from their lives and their families so that they could, you know, integrate into Australian society or whatever. And 
Uh, just the, the idea that if you don't recognize the sentience and the, the humanity and the self-ownership of others, you will, you're more likely to treat them as if they are not. And you are, if you don't see them as having rights, you're more likely to mistreat them. So um, I think it plays out in both of these movies, strangely enough. Well, we see it every day in, in news media uh, and, and demonizing people in war and uh, dehumanizing them. We saw it with slavery and, and other things where whatever the, you know, whatever the accepted uh, perception of, of others was at the time, it gave them an excuse to not have rights or not, not recognize the rights of others. Right, like uh, some court says that they're three-fifths of a human being, so then they don't actually have rights. Right, but that's also government, everyone. <laughs> right, baby. Everyone who says the government is the solution to things, uh, if you rewind the tape, government was usually behind most of the ills of the world that you see. Um, but uh, not to sidetrack us too much, I want to rewind us a little bit into the overprotective nature of Marlon because Marlon had like this traumatic experience, lost 99.9% of his kids, 99.44% of his kids. And uh, he was very, very overprotective of his one last surviving fish. So he had a very high value in this one fish. That was the point you were alluding to earlier. And when he sends him off to school for the first day, he's, of course, taking him uh, to the school. Like, he's not going to let him out of his sight. And there's one scene where he says, uh, wait right here, there's, there's traffic. And they wait until there's a, a pause in the traffic. And this is something we do with our kids because um, we're on a relatively busy road, at least for the neighborhood that we live in, and we don't have a fence, so we are we're very um, aware of the road. We make sure the kids are aware of the road, and we you know make sure that they know that they need to look both ways and they need to listen and for themselves. Like they can't just expect that because I decided to go that it's okay for them to go. And I've I've even told them this story, and I think I mentioned it on on one of our shows as the Rebothar podcast. But uh, if you're ever in New York City, Jeremiah, if you've been there, you might know what I'm talking about. Um, there are many people walking constantly, and they, they cross whenever there's no cars. They don't really follow the walk signals and the lights and things like that. But there's also so many tourists there. And you get a lot of this uh, kind of lemmings thing going on where if the person in front of you starts walking, uh, many people will just start walking as well. But some of the native New Yorkers, they're used to the traffic and the speed of the cars or they kind of know what to expect. So they might be timing the crossing um, based on their experience versus mm-hmm. someone else who's behind them will assume because they're the person in front of them is going that now it's safe for them to go when the person in front of them might be timing it just to just make it. Mm-hmm. And I saw so many near accidents, so many near, near misses. Uh, it's a weird way of saying things. So many near hits, but the proper, I guess the... Yeah. The way you say near miss. miss is, well, I've always hated that. It doesn't sound yeah. right. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm, I, I do wonder how many people do get hit because it seems to be that there's this social uh, communication going that if someone is, someone else is going in front of you, then it's okay for you to go when really they're judging it based on their particular situation. So with our kids, we train them much like Captain Fantastic to uh, look for themselves, you know, make sure that it's safe for you in your judgment, not because someone else is going. Yeah. For sure, Daniel. Good job. All right. So that's our PSA for today. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the other... So that, scene, that scene really hit you in the feels then. 
Well, it, it reminded me of my kids and what we do with them and my time in New York because I went there four or five times uh, for trips just to be there and try out, try out the food and check out the sites. I, I think I almost got hit a few times before I figured this out. Right. All right, so the next note you have is interesting because I kind of had the same thought when I was watching this, and I want to see if our guest uh, – I'll see our guest take on this. So Daniel made a note that Marlon is, you know, all crazed. He's super worried. You know, Nemo just got kidnapped or whatever, and he's off trying to find, you know, which way the boat went and whatever. And he bumps into Dory. And Dory's like, oh, yeah, I saw the boat. Went over this way. Come on, follow me. And, of course, we find out that Dory has, you know, short-term memory loss. And so she looks back behind her and sees Marlon following her, and she's like, why is this fish chasing me? And so she kind of runs, you know, and she tells him not to stop, you know, stop following me and whatnot. Now, Daniel wrote, can she consent if she forgets shortly afterwards? So this is like a moral question. Daniel, do you want to elaborate on this question? Yeah. So she has a condition that makes her forget things. But uh, in her lucid moment, she had agreed to help him and that her, her and him traveling together was an okay thing. And you, you can, of course, extrapolate this to many situations. But if she then forgets that she said, yeah, this is okay, and now in her state of mind, she's like, no, don't follow me. Uh, is she now, you know, telling him, like, what, what is the correct response? Like, if, if there's like this mental condition where she did offer consent, but now she doesn't recall offering the consent, it's kind of a weird question, right? Mm-hmm. Right, like you have to remind her that she did consent? Or do you have to respect her new position that, no, I don't consent? Well, I think you can do both. You can respect the fact that she doesn't remember. I think you have to. I mean, you can't just... Um, you can't just try and convince her, oh, no, you did, because <laughs> she won't remember yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, you can you can, you can can say that, but I think you, you definitely don't just keep following her even if she tells you not to. You have to just be like, well, oh, she forgot. Now she doesn't want me to. What's relevant, I think, is is what is you know the most recent uh, uh, response or the most you know yeah whether yeah. she whether she consented most recently or not. So right. to to continue the movie, he would just have to Groundhog Day her every time and be like, okay, you forgot. All right, let me try to convince you again. All right, now you consent. All right, let's travel <laughs> ten more feet. Then she forgets. It's, uh, it's no way to make it across the ocean. No, 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 he would no. he would quickly dump her. He'd be like, no, okay, I'm just going to go on my own. This is not worth it. I'm losing time. But she almost does. But then those uh, right. sardines or whatever they are, they that that make the shapes to cheer her up. They uh, they tell him which way to go based on the information she got off of that mask. And so then then they're kind of off to the races again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, shortly after this part where. Uh, she's decided to help him and then forgets and decides to help him. Uh, they run into the sharks. And there was a note I have in here that's kind of funny. Um, at first, they uh, they think they're going to be eaten by these sharks, but the sharks are having like an AA meeting for not eating fish, and they've gone a couple of days or a couple of weeks without eating fish. Uh, but then uh, one of the sharks says in relation to Nemo gone missing and Marlon trying to find him, uh, they make a note that says... It's probably humans. They think they own everything. Probably American. <laughs> right. And I thought that was kind of an interesting, almost a dig at private property and Americans in general, like almost a elitist kind of thing to say, like, oh, you're not yeah. in the Kumbaya, like 
you know, we're all part of the one world. Everyone collectively owns everything together or, or ownership is evil or something. Right. No, I, I would agree with that. I think it was a, a slight dig or not so subtle dig against capitalism and private property for sure. Yeah, I roll yeah, my I never, heavily at that one. I never noticed that. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but, but right before that, they run into the shark and, of course, they're little fish and they're running into this giant toothed shark. And he invites them to this party, and they're like, "No, no, I don't, I don't want to go." And he just kind of like picks them up and carries them with him. And he's like, "Oh no, I insist! Come on, you're going." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that, that that felt very much like a kidnapping to me. It was exactly they were like, a kidnapping. Yeah. 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 Okay. Good. Daniel. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I think intent might play a role in, in whether something's a kidnapping. It's it's a matter of perspective. Like he might have just been a. a over exuberant uh, host wanting to entertain because I've run into people like that. No, come in for a drink. Oh, come over to this thing. Come over, and they, they sort of guilt you into it or insist and, and kind of drag you a little bit. And I wouldn't consider that necessarily a kidnapping. Now the shark may have had an ulterior motive because uh, you know he does eat fish and he's trying not to. And as soon as he smells blood, then his natural instincts take over and, and he starts chasing him and tries to tries to kill them. So it would certainly to the Fish's perspective, if if we're buying into the whole, they have a conscious consciousness and well, but, understanding, well, but, then but, they would know that it's a risk to go with this guy and not wanting to go with him for a good reason and being taken. I guess that would, in their minds, be a bit of a kidnapping. Right. I mean, in your your initial defense was using examples where you know the people, whereas in this movie, not only is are they prey talking to a predator, they're also talking to a predator they've met for the very first time, and not only that, the shark like picks them up and puts them on his like fins and carries them with him as he's, you know, go, Oh no, you're coming. So for yeah, me, absolutely. it was very much a kidnapping. I, I totally agree with that analysis. This big, scary shark just comes up out of nowhere and they're absolutely terrified. And he just literally grabs them. Like yeah. that's good. What's way beyond just, you know, a boisterous host or whatever. Cause it, it wouldn't have mattered how much they had protested. It wouldn't have, he would have just grabbed them. So, right. But do you think that he would have gotten violent with them? Like, uh, I mean, he did grab them, but not... Not to harm them. Right. Not to harm but them, But they don't right. know that. Right, exactly. Yeah, so that's where the perspective kind of comes into play and, and the, the nature of the, uh, you know, it's the, pre, like you were saying, the prey and the predator. Like, they have an expectation that the shark is right. going to likely eat them. Uh, right, so because they, this is a ridiculous scenario, right? I mean, he's a, a, a shark that doesn't eat fish. So what exactly does he eat then? I mean, he's like, well, what, what in this weird world, how is he surviving? Mm. You know, so you, what are the odds you're going to, in the, in the entire ocean, you're going to run into the three, the one shark that's a vegetarian or whatever, you know? <laughs> Coraltarian. <laughs> right. Yeah. Whatever he happens to eat. With, with like the interventions. <laughs> right. I mean, 99.999% of the time, they're very much justified in saying, no, I don't want to go to your party. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of a, I think it's a Thomas Sowell quote or maybe a Walter Williams, but he says, uh, you know, if I see a, a tiger, I'm not going to go up and ask the tiger, hey, are you a nice tiger? Mm. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to go with the nature of a tiger or and, and be wary and be, you know, keep my distance. So. Right. And following in the father theme, they also mentioned the fact that the big shark's name is Bruce and that he never knew his father. And in fact, they actually mentioned it twice and it's kind of a joke. 
but yeah, it's very father themed this movie. Yeah. Um okay. So then we get a scene with Nemo trapped in the tank with the other prisoners. Um I don't really have much for notes on this other than that the pelican comes and they're like, I'll check in out what the dentist does. And the pelican kind of says, oh, hi. Well, you know, sorry if I took a nip at you, but birds got to eat. There's one one guy that understands how it works. Yeah, there was a, a one little kind of funny thing in the commentary uh, on the DVD. Uh, they all the all of the de- dentistry terminology that they use because these fish or the yeah these fish in this tank constantly you know all they basically have to do is to watch him do his uh, his work and they you know basically are, are yeah. experts <laughs> yeah they're they're experts on all the the dentist terminology and stuff and they the guy who wrote that actually did a bunch of research and made sure that everything that he uh, included in there was legit. So that, like, if a dentist is watching the movie, they would have, like, a private chuckle, <laughs> knowing I, that it was all actually accurate. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's that's a good effort on the part of the writer, yeah. for sure. Yep. So, um, so, yeah, Nemo's swimming around in the little tank, and he gets sucked up into this tube, and um, everybody's, like, freaking out. And Gil, this kind of, like, grizzled ex- ocean fish. Willem Nobody Defoe. help him. Yeah, played by Willem Dafoe. Basically says, no, you can do it. You can do it on your own. Um, so it's a really good kind of like self-empowerment type of message there that you don't necessarily always have to rely on other people. You can have some your own strength. Yeah, that's there's that that's um, a major theme. Uh, Nemo learning how to fend for himself and, and um, hit Marlon having to learn that he has to let to let Nemo do that. Um, and right. it was, there's a lot of little things. Um, by the way, just as a little aside, Gil is the most anarchist character. So I love him. Um, yeah, <laughs> but he, they, uh, uh, there's this, there's a bunch of little, one of the, well, just kind of as a general back to general things that I love about the movie. There's a lot of these little things in the screenplay that kind of, I'm not sure what the word for it is, but in a screenplay when like something, there's like a seed that's planted or like something is mentioned and then like it comes to fruition later or it's like referenced again later in some way. Uh, foreshadowing. Like callback, yep, foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, foreshadowing, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it's or, just foreshadowing. Or a callback. I feel like there's something else. Yeah, maybe that too, callback. But there's one good one where Gil teaches, because uh, the, the dentist goes to scoop Nemo out to give him to his niece. And Gil jumps up into the net and starts swimming down. He tells everybody, get in and swim down. And so they all get in and swim down, and he pulls the net out of the dentist's hand. Well, that same thing happens later. Uh, right. Nemo, when when the, those fishermen are, this is after they get out of the, Nemo, I get, he gets flushed down like the little sink by the dentist chair or whatever, I think. And then the pelican gets, helps Dory and Marlin get out, and the rest of the fish get out in plastic bags or whatever. But anyway... After that happens, the uh, they um, Dory and Marlin and, and Nemo all find each other again, and there's a, a fishing boat, um, and they're bringing in this huge amount of whatever this type of fish is, and so and and Dory gets trapped up with them, and so Nemo Nemo uh, tell you know he's like, Dad, I need to Dad, I know what to do to save these fish, 
So he gets in there and tells them, you know, swim down, swim down. He gets them all swimming down, and they break the boom off of the boat. So it's like, it's like this more, um, like a larger scale version of something that had happened earlier. And I, I love stuff like that in screenplays because it's just like it ties everything together really nicely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it shows shows where he. Yeah, and it shows where he learned that from. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you know, another note um, regarding Nemo having to figure it out on his own on how to get unstuck and rely on his his uh, his own abilities is that it's a lot of it's to, due to mindset. Like if you don't think you can do something, or if you know that somebody there is there to help you, or uh, or whatever, then even if you don't think that uh, it's affecting your performance, like what you're actually able to do, it it really is. Like when Marlin first starts chasing the boat, he's swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming, uh, and probably going well beyond whatever his uh, his original thought of how fast or how far he could swim, but he knew that he was going to try to save his his last remaining child, and so he pushed himself beyond his physical limits. And I think that's a similar thing with Nemo figuring out how to get out of the out of the tube um, by himself as well. And I think that's what Gil was trying to show him is, you no, know, you can mm-hmm. do it. You know, you, you you're going to use this as a learning experience because it'll make you tougher, stronger. Uh, sort of like in uh, Star Trek beyond uh, where Kroll was saying, you know, struggle makes you stronger. I think in a, in a certain way um, you learn from trial and error and, and you learn from your mistakes and, and you build on your successes. And I think that that's sort of part of the message of, of this, this part of the scene, because similar to another callback um, later on, when they are trying to escape the tank, Nemo has to f- go up that tube again, but mm-hmm. willingly, you know, to try to get a pebble into the, into the little fan to make the the aquarium get super dirty. So then the dentist would have to clean it, take the fish out, put them in the bags, and then they could roll across the street. That was their their uh, Alcatraz escape plan. Right. But, he, yeah, because Nemo had the motivation that first, when they first have him do it, when Gil has him try it, he doesn't necessarily have the motivation to do it, and he's kind of scared mm-hmm. of doing it for the first time. But then when he finds out that his dad is in Sydney, and he just needs to get out of there. Then all of a sudden he's like, oh, well, I just got to do this and this and this, and I'm going to do it. And yeah. 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 And they call him uh, shark bait after the initiation. Do you want to talk about the initiation a little bit? Just the concept of initiation and go from there. Let's talk about that scene a little bit. Sure. So he's in the tank and he's got, there's like ver- a variety of tropical fish in this tank. And they, he's new, obviously. And so they want to initiate him into their club. And so what that is, is he has to pass through the ring of fire, which is just the toy volcano in the place, but they have the actual control to be able to turn it up so that a bunch of bubbles and whatnot shoot up out of it. But they, they're acting kind of like, you know, scary and like, this is a serious thing. And oh my goodness. And once you do this, you'll be one of us and that sort of thing. Yeah. They're all culty and uh, chanting and whatnot. Right, and then once he does it, and it's it's a big nothing. It's a big lead up to nothing, right? And it's kind of a joke that it's all scary, and then oh, he just pops right over, and everything's fine, and then they're like, "Hey, you're one of us." Um, you know, he wasn't really given an option, but I I think he had an option. He could have opted out of doing it, but in general, I have absolutely zero problem with you know groups having initiation rituals or any kind of requirements to join a group. I mean, you don't have rights to be in a group. I always find it stupid and disgusting when say like like there's the um 
the Masters, I want to say. I think it's the Masters in golf. And there aren't, you know, it's all just a bunch of white old men. And I think they, they, the, a couple of women, like, sued them to be able to allow these women to entry. So they're going to use the violent arm of government to force them to allow them. And there's absolutely zero things stopping these women or anybody else that wants to play golf from starting up their own club that allows, you know, just just a women's golf club or whatever. Um, I think it's perfectly fine. I think people should be able to uh, voluntarily associate with who they want to associate with and to exclude people who they want to exclude. Like, I, I, I think any group I would ever want to be in uh, wouldn't involve politicians. And I just absolutely out of the gate. I don't care who you are. I'm just going to exclude you. I mean, unless you're maybe like a Ron Paul type that's just going in there to expose the system. But yeah, I absolutely um, have no problems with it other than unless he was like forced to do it. But I, I, didn't, I didn't feel like he was forced to do it. Did you? So Robert, let me ask you this uh, related question. So Memorial Day was just a few weeks ago and apparently Black Lives Matter had their own black only Memorial Day and they were uh, being very exclusionary. And I think they were on Tucker Carlson talking about it. And Tucker was saying, isn't this the very type of thing that you're supposed to be fighting against? Like you're exhibiting racism uh, in, in an attempt to fight racism or, or to denounce racism. Right. And I, I see that point that Tucker's making, but I tend to agree with you. Like if they want to have a blacks only whatever, Pizza party, yeah. Memorial Day par- par- uh, parade, barbecue, whatever. Uh, they should be able to do that. Um, though I do, I do agree that it is a bit hypocritical of them to claim that uh, they're not being racist because they definitely are. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I well, I you know the left likes to treat like racism as like the ultimate sin. It's just it's basically people having their own in-group preferences and their own preferences. And, yeah, it's not the most evil thing in the world to want to be around whoever you choose to want to be around with. Um, it is racist but to exclude people based on their race. Sure, of course it is. But it's not wrong and not immoral for them to do so. Yeah, and I, I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm thinking it's more the content of the character. Like if somebody is a politician, then you know that the content of their character is not good. Um, what's Congress's approval rating? You know, like everyone hates politicians except for when it's election time then they're all going to clamor or you know based on their pseudo ideology they're all going to say oh my person is the greatest person ever and your person is pure evil the devil hitler himself um until they're actually in the job and doing the job and no one's satisfied with what they're doing right as minarchy is what do you think jeremiah uh yeah and i i completely agree with all that um i'm all for voluntary association and i am it's exasperating to see how how uh, frequently you see people freaking out over stuff that just isn't that big a deal. Like I I get fired up and upset over you know people being bombed and murdered you know because that's like really bad. But like <laughs> right. somebody not wanting to associate with somebody like why do I care? Like yeah, why is that is it? The, like the, this big <laughs> deal? Right. Or somebody says a, a bad word or called somebody a name or something. It's like, can we be adults here? Yeah, worst, worst person ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that, that reminds me, Jeremiah, of something you said maybe in the pre-show, but maybe earlier in this show that, uh, oh, man, what was it? 
You blew it, Daniel. I did blow it. Oh, at least I can edit this out, or will I? Don't do it. <laughs> Leave it. All right, now, uh, remind but, oh, me. There was, uh, basically, oh, Jeremiah was saying that Gil was the most anarchist uh, fish, and it's true. Um, he's black and gold. This, uh, yeah, he's black and gold. Or No, he's not. Is he, is he blue? I thought he was blue. Well, the type of fish he is comes in black and gold and white. He's, an, he's a, a Moorish idol fish. I see, but there is a uh, there is a gold fish in the thing, and he's like obsessed with the the treasure chest that shoots bubbles up, and he's like bubbles, 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 my bubbles. And Gil says fish aren't meant to be in a box; it does things to your head. So yeah, he's very much you know yeah. I'm a prisoner. I need to escape and get out into the open ocean because he is a, a former ocean fish, whereas everybody else besides Nemo was uh, born and raised in captivity. Right. Yeah. Yes. So, let's see. I don't really have many notes for, uh, I mean, they get swallowed by this giant whale. We find out that uh, she can uh, speak whale. And then there's a whole bit where Marlin really has to learn to let go and kind of trust that things are going to be okay because he's just so upset. And it's kind of a metaphor for letting Nemo go and let him be himself as opposed to being this helicopter parent where he just has to let go of this tongue where the whale is telling them, that, okay, it's okay, I'm going to shoot you out of my blowhole. Um, then he, let's see, yeah, then they meet Crush, Mr. Woods' uh, nemesis, nemesis, um, where he's just this, what, they're like a pack of sea turtles, and they're just chilling out in, the, uh, in the, the current, some kind of current, South Australian current or something like that. Um, oh, and then um, Marlin is upset because in the movie, at some point, he says he makes a promise to Nemo, which is this weird promise, and I'm glad they address it. He goes, I'm, I, I promised him that nothing would ever happen to him. And Dory goes, well, that's a weird thing to promise, because if, if, if nothing ever happens to him, then nothing's ever going to happen to him. That's yeah. just the most bizarre thing ever. I like that. So, yeah, not only is it a ridiculous thing to promise, of course things are going to happen to you, but they should happen to you. It's part of what life is about. Right. Yeah, well, it's yeah. how you learn and get stronger and smarter and faster and all those other good things through experience, trial and error, like we were saying earlier. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you'd just be this coddled, sheltered creature that doesn't know anything about life, and you would go through life completely protected and not have any understanding and not really truly live, right? Yeah. Now, there, there's something I do remember that Jeremiah said in the pre-show, and that was that there was a... Uh, a contrast in the relationship between Marlin and Nemo and Crush and Squirt. So, Jeremiah, you want to go through that a little bit? Oh, yeah. So, uh, it's, they're, Marlin and, and um, Crush are very much foils to each other. Um, and it's you, you see it more. I've, I've noticed it more and more the more I watch the movie about how basically every line that Crush says is kind of calculated to be... Um, like push back against Marlin's conceptions of the world and, and his uh, assumptions and just his uh, idiosyncrasies and things. He's, he's just the totally opposite type of person. He's very, you know, you know, let, and there's a scene even where, uh, where squirt crushes a little kid, like flies, like falls out of the current and he's like by, you know, by himself, he has to try and get back in and uh, crushes like, Let's just see what he does. And Marlin's reaction is like, "Oh my god!" Like, and and it's just totally different. Like, it's just such a metaphor for 
you know, it's just like there's all these things that, that Marlon is going through. The whole movie is just constantly like being, being into his head, like, you know, let your son, you know, live his life. And he, he needed that. He needed all of this, you know, confluence of factors to finally be like, okay, I guess I can, you know, loosen the leash a little bit. Um, yeah, and as much as Tom doesn't like Crush, I, I I didn't mind his parenting style. I mean, it was more buddy buddy with with his son, but he was also training him. He was also saying, "All right, make sure you got an exit partner, an exit buddy. Uh, make sure you do a, a role or whatever." So he's teaching the proper skills to be able to encounter whatever the experience is going to be, but in a relatively safe manner. Uh, versus Marlon's approach, which was, you "No, know, let's just avoid it." You know? Right, yeah. Yeah. There's one point where uh, Squirt like falls out of the current and Marlin freaks out, but Crush is like, no, let's just hang back, see what happens, see how he does, see what happens, see what he, see what he does to, and, and he gets back into the current, all fine. Yep. So like, Daniel, Jeremiah, you, like uh, Jeremiah just talked about. <laughs> right. Um, you've got three nice little bits here and that's the end of our notes. Um, You've got the Aquascum 2003 free market providing a solution to a problem, which is true. I mean, it's a nice, they were all, ooh, nice. You know, like and, them is like, this tank is dirty, prepare for laser cleaning. <laughs> right. And um, when they're escaping from the dentist and Dory's looking for which way Marlon went, and she had been reunited with Nemo at that point, and they come across some crabs who are feeding and they go you know which way did he go and the crab's like you can't make me tell you and so she <laughs> picks up crab and then offers him to seagulls to be eaten and you have in here is that an and is that an nap violation and i would say yes very much it is that is a threat of murder or a threat of death or else you will tell yes. me right yeah because the crabs are are doing their own thing and and she's like well who's going to make me and in a way that's almost a uh escalation it's like okay i'm challenging you now to make me yeah yeah but you would you say that that he's like he's not the fault he's not at fault just because you say make me doesn't mean that that person has to go and make you i mean they still have self-ownership right though my my daughter my daughters they do this to each other they'll say um kid one will say to kid two all right now hit me (laughs) <laughs> or push me or, you know, do whatever so that then kid one can then respond to whatever kid two has aggressed upon them. Like, but it's, it's like <laughs> goading them into it. Like, all right, I, I know I can't hit you kid two, but if I tell you hit me, then I can hit you. Yeah. That's funny. Hmm. Yeah. It seems like a violation of contract. Like <laughs> once you say, go ahead and hit me, you're inviting them to hit you. But then when you turn around and hit them, then that seems like you're violating the contract, the terms of the contract, because the terms of the contract seem to be that you just you were going to hit me and then that was going to be the end of it. Yeah, I mean, it's not like an official like boxing match type thing, because, of course, both uh, agree to hit each other, right? I mean, this is a four-year-old and a two-year-old deciding, uh, how can I get away with uh, hitting my sister when my parents keep talking about the NAP and Murray Rothbard to me? <laughs> kids so what what are your what's your parenting strategy then let them just let them work it out what do you do uh yeah it's an evolving strategy but uh we usually go after kid one and say no you can't tell her to hit you because then you're just going to use it as an excuse so it's not it's not cover 
Like, if she comes and attacks you, then she's in the wrong. But if you tell her to attack you, then you're in the wrong. All right. Now, yeah, self-ownership, but two years old, you know. Like, if someone says, oh, go do this, she's probably going to go do it. Is that where she's at mentally, you think? I think so, yeah. Uh, but, you know, let's let's scale it up to, you know, 16 and 14. 16-year-old says to the 14-year-old, hit me. Well, can the 14-year-old then hit the 16-year-old? Or self-ownership, should the 14-year-old say, no, it's bad advice. I'm not going to do it. No, I think that, that establishes a contract that here's, here you're going to hit me once and then that'll be it. That's a verbal contract. Right, but I mean, who who's ever done that except for trying to get into a fight? You know, like, I'll give you the first hit, but the implication in, in that is that then it's going to become an actual fight. Like, give me your best in every shot. Movie, in every mm-hmm. movie I've ever seen, that's what happens, but I'm not saying that <laughs> movies are necessarily like real life. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, go ahead. I, I, I suppose there are sadists and masochists, and, and they can have a, an agreement, uh, a contract uh, complete with safe word, whatever that's going to be, like maybe Covefe or Cov. How do you say that? <laughs> Covefe, maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> that's his safe word. <laughs> All right, so I think we're we're near the end of the movie, and Jeremiah, you've already sort of talked about this scene that was foreshadowed and called back later, where they're trapped in a net with a whole school, a grouper, with this industrial fishing boat, and I think Dory is trapped in there, and mm-hmm. Nemo comes up with the idea of how they can save it, save, save her and, of course, the whole school of fish, and it's by working together, collectively, mm-hmm. and it kind of weirded me out a little bit, because it was... I'm, I'm trying to think of like what message is that telling kids like oh you all have to work together collectively like mm, the collective yeah. socialism uh, <laughs> but, but I think you got it right in your comment in your in your note here Daniel right you're working together without even trying and that's right. and, market, voluntary cooperation and in pursuing your own self-interest through voluntary means benefits everybody right because all of the fish were, were in the net captured and just they coordinate. An yeah, they yeah. all had an interest in getting out, and they all volunteered to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm just wondering if that that nuance that you know the three of us can see might be lost on a four-year-old. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it can be interpreted. It can very easily be interpreted in the more problematic way. I I agree. I agree. Uh, I don't have any exact evidence, but I could see how it would be <laughs> misinterpreted or interpreted any number of ways. I don't know what the original intent was, but. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and I might plug this in uh, 10 seconds earlier. Circle gets the square. What? <laughs> Whenever someone says I agree, then I say circle gets the square. Is that going to be your new your new tagline? That's from Hollywood, Hollywood Squares That's back right? in the back in the 80s. <laughs> oh, I know. Is that is that going to be a thing that you're going to say now? Because I, I I've been wanting you to have a catchphrase. I'm just wondering. <laughs> That's a terrible one. So might as well, you know, we'll put it on okay. some merch. We'll, we'll make yeah, that available for sale on the site. <laughs> Actual Anarchy. Circle gets a square. Actualanarchy.com, everyone. Circle gets a square. <laughs> All yeah, right, so that, that's we've come to the, the end of our notes, yeah. Uh, is there anything that we haven't touched on that, that you'd like to cover, Jeremiah, regarding the movie? Any scenes that maybe we should talk about a little bit? I don't. I think we've been pretty comprehensive. There's two little things we didn't really talk about, but I don't know really how to dig in deeper, but um, it was the, the jellyfish and the uh, the uh, anglerfish. Those are two little scenes that we didn't really delve into too much. Okay, I'll um, add one more. 
and then and then uh, then we can do our, our winding down the show. So those two things, and I want to talk about the seagulls, and then I'm all saying mine, 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 yeah. mine, mine, mine. So let's first go with jellyfish. So what's your bid on the jellyfish? Um, I'm not I'm not sure I have a deeper point there, but the that was the scene where they instead of going through the trench like the sardines told them to. Dor- uh, Dory had forgotten that they said that, so sh- they ended up going over the trench, and they were a, a school of jellyfish descended upon them. And uh, Dory just started bouncing around because it was fun, and Marlon's like, don't do that, and she ends up getting stung real bad, and he has to save her. And, um, and then uh, with the anglerfish, they were trying to use its light to see what was on that mask that the fisherman had dropped. And so that was a key moment because they had to figure out, she had to remember what was on there. Uh, and it said that because it was the address of the guy. And so she was able to, by that point she was starting to kind of like, and you could see throughout the movie, she starts to, and she even explicitly says it at one point, her memory is improving as she's spending time with Marlon. And so she's able to remember what's on there on the mask. Um, hey Sherman, 42 Wallaby way, Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> See, Robert remembers even. <laughs> yeah. She says it like twenty times in the movie or more. I don't know. Well, and yeah. Jeremiah knows every line, so pretty he, much he knew that one already. <laughs> Do you That's think right. that, that that is another example of people, um, or not people, but the characters pushing themselves beyond what they previously thought their limits were? Oh like, yeah, definitely. Marlon saving Dory. It's just another one of those um, one of those moments, and also Marlon was very brave in in uh, distracting the anglerfish while Dory tried to read the mask. Um, he probably never would have thought that he would be, be in that situation, you know, trying to distract this monstrous, uh, scary fish. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I think uh, even Dory herself, she didn't think she'd remember, but right. because of the intensity and the importance of remembering it, like something clicked in her to actually be able to hold on to it. So she even went beyond what she thought she was capable of. Right, yeah. Yeah, and the story of Marlon um, doing, you know, having these adventures becomes a story in the movie where it gets repeated and yeah, yeah. amazing of it, and it becomes a thing where then the pelican knows to find Nemo and to tell him, and he's inspired, and yeah, that was, was a nice moment in the movie where this timid, worried, neurotic clownfish um, basically throws caution to the wind and he has a thing that he has to accomplish and it's saving his son and he'll yeah. do whatever it takes. It's a really great message. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and speaking of message, like you were just saying, the, the communication gets out there, right? All these exploits. And there's even foreshadowing of that when um, Marlon is taking Nemo to school. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll be sure to tell you all about the sharks and the mm. sea turtles that are 100 years old that I might meet someday. Or, I, I forget the context of it, but, of course, that ends up being what literally happens within the story. And mm. he never expected that. That was also mm. foreshadowing. Right. Um, which, now that I brought us back to that scene, uh, what did you guys think about the seahorse's parenting style? Because he uh, like, mine, what it is. He smacks the little seahorse, who's like HTO intoler- intolerant. Like, <laughs> yeah. but he he like little, smacks him. Little nerd kid with all the allergies. Yeah, uh, he hits him. Yeah, he hits him. I mean, it's like a, a smack on the back of the head kind of hit. It's not like you know, I'm gonna brain you kind of hit. But what was the context? Like you're dumb. Like I, you did. Uh, like yeah, don't don't say that or 
get over here. Flight. I don't remember exactly what it was. Oh, was he making fun of? Or was he asking him about the fin or something? Oh, that, like, I think that was it. Yeah, yeah. He asked him about the fin, and, oh, and yeah. the dad's like, yeah, we don't talk about things like that or something. Smacks him. Uh, yeah, that's not cool. <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm not a fan. Yeah. It didn't stand out enough to, for me to bring it up, but I'm glad you did. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always a matter of degree. I mean, I don't think that uh, it's necessarily like the worst type of aggressive violence. No. <laughs> it's like aggressive violence light. When you, we have to remember, too, <clears throat> these principles don't really apply. They can't really apply the same way to kids that they do to adults because kids are not adults. So there's some areas, and that's one of those, you know, um, uh, aspects of the theory that needs to be fleshed out more. But, uh, you know, the whole idea of, you know, grabbing grabbing a kid by the arm to stop him from, like, running off or whatever, these are kinds of things that would be, like, inappropriate or maybe even NAP violations if, you know, it was an adult doing it to another adult. But when it's a kid, it's different. You have to... Right, like, you're, you're, you're in a supermarket... Them. And we need to go, so come on, as opposed right. to, well, I'm just going to leave you in the supermarket or something. That's right. Well, I think, the way, but. Yeah, I think I leave you in the supermarket is almost a death sentence. I think that that was a point Steph had made in some of his conversations. Because to a kid, they take everything literal. And so, wait, you're going to leave me here in this place that's not my home, and you're not going to be here? You, the person who provides everything for me? Right. Yeah. So a kid might think, oh, you know, they're telling me they're going to leave me here to die uh, right. because they leave me at the grocery store. Right. Um, and Jeremiah, that's also a good point that, that you brought up related to it's it's needs to be a little bit more fleshed out because like there's a the whole age of consent thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like there was a, a recent story I just saw the other day where there was this 25 year old teacher and she's a bit of a looker. But she was sleeping with two or three of her students, 16 and 17 uh, years old. She's like nine years older than them. And I guarantee with 99% certainty that those three kids are pleased as punch that this happened. <laughs> but she's lost her job. There's like she's been arrested. There's like going to be a, you know, a criminal situation. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure a 16, 17-year-old kid most likely has the capacity to make that decision to consent. Um I think it's a little bit weird in that there's this uh, authority of being a school teacher, but that's a mm-hmm. that's a government thing. I mean, that's it's not of a private property in Kapistan situation. You know, there there would be no like authority per se, except that except for accepted authority. Like you know, you follow what I'm saying. We talked about this with Kenny Kenny on the last episode, Robert. Um, sure. But yeah, these are types of issues that that do come up with with children. And I think that also with people who uh, don't have um, all their faculties, right, like people with Alzheimer's or people with developmentally disabled, um, they can't necessarily, yeah, memory loss like Dory, but people who can't necessarily make those decisions for themselves any longer. And I think that they they would also be maybe not in the same category as children, but um, have some similar caveats related to them. Well, and we like to use treat people as individuals because that's all that exists. But government treats people as collectives and, you know, makes a decision and then one size fits all. So the arbitrary drinking age is 21 and the arbitrary smoking age is 18 and the arbitrary consent age is 18 and driving a car. You know, they make these arbitrary decisions based on whatever. And um, you, know, you got all kinds of messed up situations. Yeah, and that, that 
makes me re recall that states used to be able to decide what the drinking age would be, and we're in we're in Washington State, and it's been 21 for ever since I can recall. But it used yeah. to be 18 in Idaho, just across the border, and I believe that this played out with um, the federal government saying we're going to withhold highway funds from any state who doesn't change to 21. So right. they sort of like forced the hand of any state that, that was different. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's all government, so I, I can't agree with any of it. But this whole strong arm, arming tactic, um, especially after they've gotten a state sort of relying on the federal funds for the roads and other programs, it, it seems like a dick move. That, that's another thing. That that could be on a T-shirt for us. Uh, Actual Anarchy Podcast, Dick Move. <laughs> yeah, we come across that quite a bit. It's not necessarily immoral, but it's a dick move. That happens a lot. Right. So anyway, that's pretty much our, our movie, folks. So uh, Jeremiah, overall final impressions, and then we'll go to Robert and we'll close the show out. Sure, yeah. Um, uh, well, number one, it was fun talking to you guys. Um, we drew a lot of depth out of this movie, that even more than I thought we would. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think I pretty much covered... I, I guess as far as just like general reasons that why it's like a top five movie for me, just to kind of throw a couple in there that I didn't go over. Um, I think because I like being in, in movie review mode sometimes. Um, Do the, it. The, the, the voice acting is incredible. Um, of course, uh, Albert Brooks holds down the fort and uh, Ellen DeGeneres, you can, you can just tell how much fun she's having with that thing. And you can, she was nobody was more excited than her that they decided to do a sequel and that she got to star in it. Um, and so, uh, you know, and the, and really all the voice acting, uh, Crush stands out. Um, I'm actually not sure who plays him, but um, and I think Andrew Stanton's directed. Andrew Stanton wrote and directed it, and I believe he also uh, he I'm pretty sure he was uh, directed Monsters Inc. And I believe he also wrote and directed Wally, which is another and, brilliant movie. And he was the voice of Crush. Oh, was he? Oh, okay. I knew it was somebody, somebody like that. Um, I believe it was actually his son who did did uh, Squirt too, or the sons of son of somebody. But uh, yeah, so and and yeah, I talked about how how awesome the screenplay is. I think there's in just when rewatching it today, I noticed a few things that I think the part of the reason that these Pixar movies are so good is they are they, they don't they they go by a lot of the same rules and conventions and you know. They, they incorporate ideas that you know that you just see in regular film. Um, it's not like you know, oh, this is animated, so it's a totally different set of rules. It's like no, it's you know, they they use um, the way that they frame some of the shots in the in the 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 uh, tank and just that whole aspect of the dentist office, like how they make it so tense and terrifying for the fish, um, and you know the way that. Uh, I love early on also when Marlin is chasing after the boat and he's just a lone fish in this vast ocean. He's just sticking his head up out of the water and there's this really dramatic piano music and um, it's just a really affecting scene. And of course, they always start the movie out with one of these really sad, you know, moments that, uh, you know, massive like, tragedy like, in all these Pixar movies. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right, like in Up, you're like crying after you're like... They're always getting murdered and dying. And yeah, Up is you're yeah. just, yeah, tears in the first 15 minutes. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah, all the, all those aspects. Um, and it's just a very funny movie. And, uh, yeah, it really runs the gamut. And so there you go. Do you recommend it as a Father's Day movie? Yeah, it's one of the best that I can think of as a Father's Day movie. Would you show it to your children? What age? What age? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think they'd have to be too old. Maybe, I don't know. I'm probably not a good person to answer these questions, but maybe, I don't know, six, seven. (laughs) Okay. Well, we'll ask Daniel here in a second, but I'll give my little uh, recap. Yeah, it's an excellent, well-acted, well-directed, well-written, especially with all the callbacks and the, the foreshadowing. It really feels like a tight, cohesive story. Uh, far superior to the, you know, Hollywood likes to, oh, they're making an animated fish movie? Well, we need to make an animated fish movie, and, it's, and mm-hmm. we're going to have Will Smith in it and whatever. Yeah, but this is far superior to uh, the Shark Tale movie with Will Smith. Um, a very good uh, example of, I mean, he had, a, he had a reason to chase after his, you know, to, to rescue his child, and I'm a huge fan of, you know, saving somebody that needs, that needs help. Um, He's going all Liam, Liam Neeson, getting his kids Sure. Back. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, why not? I never, um, I never made that comparison, but yeah, that's true. That's right. I have a very particular... Yeah, save your kid, man. Finding Nemo, he's been taken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, good movie. Uh, highly recommend it. Good Father's Day movie. Good, good example of a father who cares and who will go to any length to uh, rescue their child. Daniel? Would you show this to your children, and at what age? I I, I can and do and would. Uh, <laughs> so I got a four-year-old and a two-year-old. They're they're almost four and two, but we've had this movie probably for three or four months. So a one and a half-year-old, seventeen months, eighteen months, has been watching this, and she oh, really? likes it. Nice. Wasn't scared at any point by the sharks or anything? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The sharks scared her because there's the whole scene when when he smells the blood and starts chasing him through the through the uh, boat. Yeah the old, you know, relic boat, and then they run into the mines. Which yeah. We didn't even talk about that, the, the mines being there from, you know, war refuse. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're a little bit scared about that, but, but now that they've seen the movie, you know, umpteen times, because that's what you do with kids. As soon as it ends, mm-hmm. you play it again, and you know all the songs. Uh, I, if, if there are any parents out there, I do highly, highly recommend that you avoid the show called Tro-Tro, which is about a donkey. Uh, there are probably, it's on Netflix, and there's three or four episodes in a row in each like episode that you watch. So you get this, the theme song at the beginning, and then like two minutes of show, and then theme song again. And then the theme song again, two minutes of show, <laughs> theme song again. Wow. So you watch a half hour, and you listen to the theme song a dozen times. Brutal. Wow. Yeah, so that one's brutal. But as far as Finding Nemo, I think it's... It's pretty good for, for most kids. There there aren't too many messages that I have any real challenge with other than the perception of the working day together in a collective at the end. But I try to have that conversation with my kids and say, you know, oh, this is actually them, you know, choosing to do this in their own self-interest. And it's, look, it works out for everybody in the end that they did this. So try to I try to, to present things in an ANCAP way to the kids. Very good, Daniel. Yeah, so overall... Two thumbs up, or what was our what was our rating system going to be? Well, we were we stole the, the Weekly Planet's best movie, worst movie ever, but we can't keep stealing that. Uh, that even though that's not their intellectual property, I think we should come up with our own thing. Yeah, we should be a little bit more unique. Yeah. Uh, all right. So this might be a little bit contentious, but we could say black or gold. Hmm. I like that. 
Okay, well, that's the definitely gold the, would be the gold. Good one and the black would be the bad one. Why is the black got to be the bad one? <laughs> <laughs> it's black movie for me. Totally black. <laughs> really? You don't like the Nemo? What? Black means good, right? Oh, well, that means that's implying gold is bad. You got something against gold? <laughs> yeah, gold's terrible. Hard money? It's the worst. Fiat forever, baby. Long live the Fed. What? Come on, you guys aren't saying it. Yeah, it's like opposite day. Jeremiah, you joined us on opposite day, so thanks for <laughs> thanks for coming out. <laughs> oh, great. So I've just been promoting collectivism and socialism this whole time. <laughs> That's right. <Okay. laughs> no, yeah, good movie. You know, Stal- Stalin, Stalin would approve of the uh, Barracuda murdering 399 of the 400, because then it's just a statistic, right? <laughs> Right. <laughs> Not a tragedy there. That's right. All right. Well, maybe, maybe we are coming along, Jeremiah. Thanks for uh, being oh, thanks on the show. For having me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Absolutely. thank you very much. Uh, we might have to re- rework this black and gold thing and figure out which one's the good one, which one's not. Uh, but, hey, guys, we're, we're doing the train wreck at the end here. It's what we do. It's been the Actual Anarchy <laughs> Podcast. You can find more about us at uh, actualanarchy.com. We also run readrothbar.com. We've got... Uh, over 450 quotes now on the actualanarchy.com slash quotes. We've got a bunch of Amazon links, which our friend here, Jeremiah, actually used to purchase his microphone. So thank you very much for doing that. We made like $2.50, $3. So <laughs> thank Sweet. you. I'm a supporting uh, listener of the Actual Anarchy podcast. Yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah. The next step is to move up to our Patreon, where you can see <laughs> right. vi- video of yourself on the show. <laughs> now, I'll give it to you anyway. But uh, we have uh, our Patreon is uh, patreon.com slash Reed Rothbard. I'm narcissistic enough to pay for video of myself. (laughs) I can do that. (laughs) And uh, we've got a couple of other cool things in the works for everyone. So uh, stay tuned for that. But you can find more about this episode, our Father's Day special about finding Nemo at actualanarchy.com slash 27. And uh, so thank you guys very much. Happy Father's Day. Oh, and one more sneak preview thing. We're going to do Batman, Dark Knight, uh, coming out this week as well. So we're going to do two episodes this week. We're recording that tomorrow night. And it's sort of timely because Adam West, the original campy Batman, just died at, I think, the age of 88. Very sad. Uh, But we had been alluding to doing a Batman for a few weeks now, and I think the time is right. So we have a special guest coming to us from Australia, of all places, and, you know, because we were just talking about Australia here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll tie in really nicely. We're going to do the Australian Weekend at the Actual Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. All right. Good day, mates. <laughs>